I have a friend who left me a memorable quote. I don't remember it enough. He says, I have saved many a bad sermon by cutting it short. <laughs> this is Communion Sunday, and some of you want to go to the Messiah, so I'm going to try to keep this short, even though my notes are much longer. I read a story this past week that brought back an incident in my own life that occurred about two years ago. I read about this young woman who was camping with her family and her boyfriend in a very remote area. She decided to get up and take an early morning walk by herself. She had walked about three quarters of a mile uh, from the camp when she, sticking to the path, well-worn path, she stepped on a copperhead snake. It wrapped itself around her leg and bit her twice. She was able to shake it off. She knew that she was bitten because she looked down and saw blood. She got back to the camp and told them, and they took her to the nearest hospital, which took them about three hours, a little small local hospital. And when she got there, and the family got there, she was unable to be treated. They had no antivenom. And so they had to send a helicopter to that hospital and take her to a major regional medical center. And that was about two hours later. And by that time, due to the fact that she had been bitten twice and no immediate help, uh, she was obviously in some distress and trouble. Uh, she stayed in the hospital three days. They seemed to get everything down, sent her home, but then things continued to get worse and she had to go back and she's had to go back two or three times, uh, no less for surgery. She lost over 30 pounds and after five months, she's still not quite out of the woods, but it seems to be that she will recover. Uh, with my nephew and his wife, we took them down to the city, Manhattan, to sightsee. And on the way back, we decided to stop on the Palisades, one of those lookouts. I think it was the Rockefeller one. It was getting dark, and I wanted my niece by marriage to see the skyline of the city from that overlook. And as I was running down the path at dusk because it was late. Um, she following behind with her camera, trying to keep up. And I ran down the path, and all of a sudden she screamed. And again she screamed, and she couldn't do anything. I looked around, and she was just frozen after that. Finally, she got out a snake. And I was running, and surely enough, a snake had struck at me, a copperhead. Missed me, surely, by inches. I took a stick and threw it up on the bank. Your circumstances in life can change very quickly. Very quickly. Make no mistake about it.
there seems to be nothing but change. And the ancient Greeks believed that change always somewhere along the line would bring you evil. If you could just freeze everything in place. But you can't. Things keep turning on and on and on. We don't dodge the earthquakes or the hurricane or death. We don't dodge the heartaches of life, loss of job, opportunity. Somewhere along the line, we meet those things. The prophet Isaiah is very much aware of life in this dimension. He knows that about 150 years before him, the Assyrians descended on the ten tribes in the north and laid waste the land and carried off many back to Assyria and sent in many Assyrians into that region. And that's how we get the dilemma in the New Testament of the Jews and the problems with the Samaritans. They were half Jewish, half Assyrian. He also lives at a time in history in the 7th century when he can see that the southern kingdom, God has already told him, they too are going to be carried off to Babylon by the Chaldeans. And subject for 70 years to hear a foreign tongue. Speaking in tongues in this case was foreign, but it always meant judgment. By the way, Paul mentions that in 1 Corinthians. And so every time they heard the babble of the so-called heathen, it reminded them of God's judgment. Isaiah warned them. God's hand would be heavy upon them. They would be surrounded by pagan temples and pagan people and idols. No escape. Generation after generation before they would be released and back to Jerusalem to build the temple. Can't stop the flow of life. And oh, how fragile we are. How fragile life is. It's an amazing thing. We are fearfully and wonderfully made, but we are also fragile. And here the prophet reminds that all flesh, all flesh, is like grass in the flower of the field. It rises up and flourishes and it's beautiful, but it doesn't last. And we say in times like this when we feel it keenly, Where are you, God? Where are you in my time of need? Is there no anchor for my soul? Today I want you to see, though, conversely to these feelings, I want you to see that God has not abandoned us to our own devices and to our own weaknesses and frailty. Rather, he has joined us In our world, taking up on our weakness and by representation our sin, 
God in the Son has sided with us. He has crossed the divide and he stands with us on this side. But lo, he comes again without sin unto salvation to judge all. So today in this sermon, I want you to see this again. It is really your only hope. It is your only hope. You see, we are like grass. Oh, how the ancient philosophers understood this. I've told you several times of the philosopher Heraclitus, a Greek philosopher who lived about the 5th or 6th century B.C. And one day he went down to the river, as the story goes, probably mythological, but nonetheless he did come up with a principle. He went down to the river, according to the story, and puts his foot into the river and discovers that he cannot, when taking it out, put it in the same place twice. And he comes up with a law. Most of us would think, well, my foot is wet. But he thought of a universal principle. All of life is change. And we are subject to all that change brings. We're like grass. We have no sustenance in us to enable us to produce, to continue. And yet we have this marvelous, wonderful mind that enables us to transcend ourselves. And unlike the other creatures of the field or the beasts of the sea, we can think of our own end and contemplate it. It seems so tragic that we can do that, and yet look at the situation we are in. How, O oh Lord, do we escape? We are like grass. Even the leaders of Assyria and Babylon are nothing but grass in the sight of God. And so the prophet comes and he speaks his word and he wants to remind those people that when they go into captivity, even though they will be surrounded by a culture that is entirely inimical to biblical religion, they should remember that God is sovereign and powerful. I want you to look at this passage of scripture. It is a magnificent passage of scripture. It is quoted in the New Testament in several places. But he comes out and he says in verse 10, See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. That's what we don't have. We are weak and we are frail. But he says the sovereign Lord comes in verse 10. And his arm, his arm rules for him. And that, of course, in human history will be Jesus when he is exalted. And is exalted above all. God is powerful and eternal. But in the light of that, we are frail and weak and ephemeral. We appear as a vapor for just a while. But we're reminded by the prophet that God is eternal power. One of the things that has impressed me in my reading is how much some of these ancient religions had at the center of their notion 
of some ultimate thing, it always included power and fire, invariably, and almost all. What they did not have, they could see that somewhere it was through the light of nature. They did not know that grace, though. They could see that there was judgment, rightly so, upon a sinful and weak people. But the prophet doesn't stop there. He goes on to say in verse 11, following verse 10, he says, See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and he carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. Here is comfort in this power. Not all power is comfortable or comforting. There is a volcano supposedly ready, a huge one ready to erupt in Iceland after a hundred and some years. It may interrupt air traffic for many months. Enormous power. But it is not friendly to you or to me. It is totally indifferent. This is ultimate power. And listen what the prophet says. He starts out this passage by saying, comfort, comfort my people. You can be comforted because the power that Isaiah speaks of is one who loves. He is powerful, eternal love. Who has compassion upon the weak. And notice the tender language that is used here. My friend, whatever picture you draw of God for your children as you teach them and catechize them and fulfill your covenant responsibility to them, make sure that they understand who God is as Isaiah portrays him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms. Think of Jesus going after the one lost sheep. How much this power cares for us because he is love. And he sent his son to redeem us. But there are two comforts mentioned at the beginning of this. And while I'm not quite sure why there are two comforts, let me just speculate for a moment. That it's not enough that God loves us. But that he is coming for us. This is Advent. We're working our way to Christmas here. We have a long Christmas season, praise be to God. It's wonderful. It's not just a day. When the prophets treat the coming of Christ, they treat it as one single event. They don't quite know that he will come first as the suffering servant and the second time as the Lord of all who will judge and establish righteousness. They're fuzzy about that. But we have the advantage of being in between, if you will, in between the first and the second coming. As we live between the Garden of Eden and the New Jerusalem in a fallen world. Yet we have the advantage to see history 
being unfolded, and it is a redeeming history. God came the first time in Christ, and he comes the second time. Comfort, comfort my people. You go through many things in life, but my friend, this is true hope. Nothing else is. This is true hope. We've had a tough year here in this church. And I'm comforted by the fact that I can see Edmund and Heidi and Roger in heaven. At least two of them are good singers, and I think Bud's all right. <laughs> That's comforting. That he cares for us. I don't think we understand and appreciate the incarnation. And what Christmas really means. It means that God came in human flesh with human blood. Took upon himself an ethnicity, if you will. At a certain time in history. But why did he do it? In the words of St. Anselm, Cur Deus Homo, why did God become man? My friend, to redeem you. For he came to seek and to save the lost. That's what Christmas is about. It's the incarnation. From his very birth to his ascension, his whole life is a redeeming life. It may be concentrated on the cross and the resurrection, but every act, every word is a redeeming act. God sides with us. Yesterday at the service, there was a very large crowd at Roger Verdez's memorial service. Uh, the fellows in the brass group played a tear-jerking end, going home. By Dvorak. From his New World Symphony. And I could look at people's faces as they sat there. It struck a chord. Going home. You can't go home unless Jesus came in the middle of history. And what I like is that the ensemble before that sang an arrangement by Roger Verdesi. Love came down at Christmas. Oh, how weak we are. How vulnerable we are. But when love came down at Christmas, he stands with you on this side of the divide so that he might take you to the other side. Praise be to God for the promises found in his word that in this veil of tears we have hope and great comfort in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen.